During my sabbatical, my main project was to read through the Bible and to develop a sermon series. And so I have planned a 66-week sermon series for us to go through a different book of the Bible each week. Uh, You know, we'll take some breaks here or there, but next week we'll be in the book of Genesis. And so I encourage you to read ahead. So this week, read Genesis and come next week ready for the the book. And, um, you you know, I, I encourage you to read through the Bible. If we do this as a church, if we read through the Bible together as a church, I believe God will bless that. And uh, that would be good for us. I would also encourage you to use a study Bible. The one that I used, found very helpful, was the ESV study Bible. And in particular, there's, a, there's an introductory section before each book, and it just kind of gives you the background, the context, so you kind of know when you start reading, you know, at least where it fits into to everything else. My goal was to not get overly bogged down in details and chasing rabbits. My goal was to say, what's the big picture here? And so I would encourage you to do the same. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying ignore questions that come up, but I am saying if you chase every one of them, you're probably going to miss the big picture. So focus on what's the big story here? What's the big picture here? How does this book relate to the next book? And how does it relate to the bigger picture of, of the whole book? And this does raise an important question. Is there one big story? Is it one book? And of course, we believe it is. We believe it has ultimately one author. There's, there's a lot of human authors, but there's one divine author and this is his book and it's his story and so there is one central message and and the key theme that we're going to kind of lean into that you see throughout virtually every book of the bible is this theme of god the king and god's kingdom and so what my goal is to take the book focus on the main point of the book and then talk especially about how that main point relates to this bigger theme of god the king and his kingdom. Now I can imagine someone saying, wait a minute, I thought we as a church were committed to expository preaching through books of the Bible. And I would respond and say, yes, that is our normal approach. And my goal in this series is to continue to be expositional, to continue to be expository. Um, so so what that, here's what that means. My goal is to not read into the text what's not there. My goal is to say what's there organically, naturally, what's there, and then bring it out and explain it and exposit it and apply it for God's people. Now, normally what that means is we go through a passage, I don't know, 10 or 12 verses, and now we're going to be going through a a pretty good chunk of Scripture. You know, when it comes to Genesis, it's 50 chapters. Uh, So so therefore, admittedly, we are going to, not be able to cover a lot of very important stuff. And I'm sure I'll get a few emails. Why did you not say this? And why did you not say that? And why didn't you cover this? And why didn't you cover that? And I'm just telling you, my, my goal, just trust my heart here, my goal is to try to focus on what's the main point of this book and try to be as disciplined as I can be to be faithful to what the main point of the book is, especially as it relates to the bigger theme of the king and the kingdom. This week, we're going to do an introduction, sort of an overview of the series, and so we're going to use just the first few chapters of the Bible to, to do that. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. If you are able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to read through some select passages from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we're going to begin with Genesis 1, verse 26. This is God's very Word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now look with me at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now look at chapter 3, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you, above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now finally look at chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, I lift up this sermon series. Help us to develop a renewed love for Your Word. Help us to develop a renewed love for You as we come to know You uh, through Your Word. And I pray that we will respond faithfully for Your glory, for the advancement of Your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you have been around Vista Grande for a while, you've heard me use four words to describe the message of the Bible, the message of the Gospel, and those four words are God, man, Christ, and response. And I couldn't think of four better words to use as a summary of the Bible and a summary of, of, our, of our message this morning. And so we're going to begin with God. What does the Bible teach us about God? Of course, there's an unlimited number of things I could say. So I'm just going to focus on Genesis 1-3. through What does Genesis 1-3 through reveal to us about God. Let me point out several things. First of all, He is the Creator. That's how the book opens. It opens with God creating. And He creates everything with this very familiar pattern. Then God said, let there be, and there was. And we learn this very important truth. Everything that exists, exists because God created it. There's nothing that exists that God hasn't created. And it's the very first important distinction in the Christian faith and Christian worldview is this distinction between God and everything else. Everything falls into one of two categories. It's either God or it's something created by God. Everything. And it's crucial to keep that distinction in mind. 
The Eastern religions, for example, you know, distort this. And there's, a, there's not a real clear distinction. Where does the divine begin and end? And where does nature begin and end? Western religions, Western philosophies uh, tend to recognize God as distinct, and yet they don't recognize God as personal. And that brings us to the second point. God is personal. He's, he's the revealer. He reveals himself. So number one, God is the creator. Number two, God is revealer. In fact, this is why he creates. He creates in order to reveal himself. He creates in order to make himself known. That's why he chooses to create. And all of the creation is, is actually kind of speaking to us in one sense and telling us he's there. And he's big and he's powerful and he's beautiful and he's creative. Psalm, uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. But it's not just creation that's revealing God and His glory. God Himself speaks to us in human language and reveals Himself through actual human language, what we call the Bible. Right? Now some people will say, well, I just believe God is so big and so powerful and so transcendent and so holy and so holy other that there's no way that human language can accurately really reflect Him. And that sounds very bold and profound and humble. But here's the thing. If God the Creator chooses to come down to our level and condescend down to our level, and if He chooses to communicate using our language and using human language so we can hear Him and know Him, then by all means, He can do it. And by all means, we better listen to His words. And this is what we're claiming. We're claiming we believe the Creator has spoken and we have His very words right here in this book. We see Him speaking to Adam and Eve. We see Adam and Eve speaking to Him. They know Him. He knows them. There's relationship. In fact, that's one of the keys of what it means to be created in the image of God. Verse 27, chapter 1 says they were created in His image. What does that mean? Well, one of the things it means to be created in the image of God is to be able to know Him. We're created like Him in such a way that we can actually know Him and relate with Him and talk to Him. So there's a relationship here between the Creator and some of His creation, the people. But it's not a relationship between equals. And this brings us to the third point here. He is the King. God is the Creator. God is the Revealer. He is the King. In other words, He doesn't create all of this and create us in order to stand back and say, what do you all think? Is this going to work okay for you? you know, do, do you like it all right? Are, are, you, are you okay with this arrangement? Are you okay with this situation? Is there anything else I could do for you guys here? You know, that's not God doesn't create and sort of stand back and say, are, are you okay with this? He creates and He says, I'm the King who created, so I set the standards and the expectations. And I have this expectation that my creation will follow me, the Creator. And if you think about it, doesn't that just make sense? that the Creator gets to decide the rules and, and, and the regulations and, and, by the way, the consequences. If you don't follow my rules and my ways and the way I've ordered things, there's significant consequences that come with that. And we see one right here in chapter 2, verse 17. You will surely die. Eat from any of the trees, not this tree, and the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, I just want to point out, if you get this, if you're with me and you're tracking with me and you say, I'm with you, you're, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay with the rest of the story. There may be some parts that are a little hard to swallow here or there, but in general, you're going to say, you know what? You know, it doesn't make much sense or I don't, I don't think that's the way I would have done it, but he's the king and I'm not, so 
Okay. It says it. Okay. If, on the other hand, you kind of start with, well, I get to decide what God should be like, and I get to decide what's fair, and I get to decide what what a good God would do and what a good God would not do. Like, I'm the one who gets to kind of make those decisions and those judgments. I just want to warn you, it's not going to take very long before you're having a hard time swallowing a lot of what's coming with the rest of the Bible. If you're the one who gets to sit in judgment of God, you're going to have a tough time with a lot of the rest of the book. I remember as a kid hearing these dreaded words from my parents, because we said so. You never want to hear that. Can you give me an explanation? Because if you give me an explanation, then I might can you know debate it a little bit. Because we said so. They didn't say it a lot, but every once in a while. And my kids hear me say that every once in a while. I think it's good for kids to hear explanations. It's good to give a reason. Here's why we do this and don't do that. Here's why I'm saying no. It's good to give explanations. So when you can, by all means, give explanations. But every once in a while, our kids need to hear this important phrase, because I said so. I am the dad. I am the mom. You are not, you are the child, and you will do this or you will not do this because I'm the one in authority here. And it's good for kids to get that, right? It's good for them to know that. There may be something that I just can't share with you. There may be something you just don't know. Maybe I just don't have time to explain right now. But sometimes you just need to get, I'm dad, you're not, and we're doing this or we're not doing that because I said so. And the God of the Bible doesn't start with, you know, is this going to be okay? Do we need to talk about this? Do we need to have a little negotiation here? Is this going to work out? Is this arrangement okay for you guys? He starts with, look, this is who I am, and this is what I expect. He tells us right up front, this is who I am, this is what I expect. I'm your creator, and I'm your king. And this is what I expect. And he not only tells us about himself right up front, he tells us about us right up front. It's not up to us to come up with who we think we are. Our Creator tells us, and He tells us very clearly, this is who you are, and this is what I expect of you. Now, here's my question for you this morning. Do you have a God who's big enough to do that to you? Do you have a God who's big enough to stand powerful enough? Is your view of God so big that He can actually stand over you and say to you, this is who I am and this is who you are, and this is what I expect of you? And sometimes that involves getting your toes stepped on. Like, do you ever get challenged by God? Do you ever have an experience where God challenges you, causes you to see you need to change? You need to do something differently? Do you ever get offended by God? Is that ever your experience? If not, I would venture to say your view of God is not the biblical God. Your view of God is kind of this grandfatherly, nice older man who just sort of wants you to be happy. And who just says, well, as long as you're happy, you know, I'm okay with whatever. But, you know, here's probably the way you ought to do it. But as long as you're happy, that's what matters, your happiness. That's the modern view of God. Very worldly view of God. The nice grandfatherly figure who just sort of says, as long as you're happy, we'll be okay. That is not the biblical view of God. He's the creator. He's powerful enough to to challenge you, to step on your toes. The Bible begins with God, the Creator King. And this brings us, secondly, to man, or mankind, people. One of the most foundational truths we learn about people right up front is that they are created in His image, in His likeness. People are like God in some ways because He created us like that. 
And one of the ways that it means to be created in the image of God is to be created as male or female. Genesis 1.27. I like the way the King James says it. Male and female created He them. He created them male and female. God creates people as one or the other. There's not a fluidity to this. This doesn't change. And, and you know, I'll state the obvious. Our, our world is so confused about this right now. We live in a world that thinks this is sort of fluid. It's sort of up for debate. You can sort of try one and then try the other. And it's sort of up to you. And it, just, it, just, it, just, it honestly just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't pass the common sense rule. Right? We live in a country where you have to be 21 legally to purchase or consume alcohol. And yet the same country says legally a child can choose surgery to radically alter their body in, in, in an attempt to change genders. It just doesn't make sense at all. Right? And, and nature is telling us this. I mean, biology is telling us this. Our chromosomes are telling us this. You're either male or you're female. And it's not just nature that's telling us this. The Bible's telling us this. Right? You, you, God creates you in His image and He creates you as male or female. And by the way, the Bible also teaches that human sexuality is to take place, but it's to take place between one male and one female. And by the way, the Bible is also very clear that the context in which that one male and that one female are to have this sexual relationship is in the context of marriage. What is that? The Bible gives it to us. It's a part of creation ordinance. It's one man, one woman committed together in a covenant relationship for a lifetime. That's biblical marriage. That's human marriage. That is marriage. That is where human sexuality is to happen. And, uh, And one of the purposes for which God gives us this marriage is that the man and the woman would have children, would procreate. And so we see right here in verse 28, they are told, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, they are to reproduce themselves and have more people who are created in the image of God, who therefore, because they are also created in the image of God, have this incredible dignity and value and worth from conception all the way to natural death. And since I was out and gone, I just want to put in kind of a side note, I'm very grateful that our U.S. Supreme Court recognized rightly that that terminating a child in the womb is not a basic human right. And it also happens to not be a right that's mentioned in our U.S. Constitution as well. But another distinction that we have to keep clear, according to the Christian worldview, the first distinction, remember, creator and creation. But now the second distinction when it comes to creation, there's people and then there's everything else. Very important distinction. Those who are made in the image of God, namely people, men and women, and everything else, Everything falls into one of these two categories. The first category, there's creator and creation. Second category, there's people, humans, and there's everything else. And our world is confused about this today. People in our world today almost talk and act and make decisions as if we are here for nature, as if we are here for the creation. It's just the opposite. The creation is designed by God for us. He creates a world and the most special part of all of His creation is people and He puts us in the garden to rule it. To rule it in His place. He's the King. We come under Him as His subordinates made in His image 
to rule over the earth. And this is, a, this is the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God was in the very beginning. You say, where are you getting this? Where are you seeing this? Well, look at verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. That's the picture. People created in the image of God, starting with Adam and Eve, procreating in the context of marriage so that there's more people who will do what? Be sort of like little lords or little kings, uh, demonstrating stewardship over God's creation for God's glory. So this is, this is the good news. There's bad news that's coming because all of this picture gets altered and frustrated and there's sin and there's a fall and this, this picture gets distorted and it's, it's hard. Uh, but before we get to that, I just want to emphasize that God creates people in His image and therefore He loves them and He values them and He cares for them and especially His people. And the, and the, the Bible emphasizes this throughout, this emphasis on God's care, His love for His people. Every single book of the Bible, you see it. Even in a book like Lamentations, which is filled with the judgment of God coming against sin. Right in the very middle of the book of Lamentations, and I, mean, I don't think it's by coincidence, it's right in the middle. Starts with judgment, ends with judgment, judgment everywhere else, but right in the middle is this incredible passage that I usually kind of sing to myself oftentimes when I'm running. The steadfast love of the Lord never changes. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So the good news is, the good news about mankind, God loves us and cares for us. And you see that theme throughout from the beginning to the end. But the message about us is also very sobering. We mess up big time. In fact, the, the phrase that's used, the term that's used is not mess up, it's sin. Adam and Eve sin against God. And they reap the serious consequences of their sin. Now they die. They die as a result of their sin, just as God had warned them. So they sin, they rebel, they don't trust God, they don't take Him at His word, and there's consequences. And that pattern, what Adam and Eve, and that pattern, that story, it just gets repeated again and again and again and again. And it's almost, you almost get worn out just going, oh my goodness, not again. Please don't. Do, well, no, 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 please no. Oh my goodness, I can't believe this. Right? And, and let me just highlight two, two examples. Uh, God delivers His people from Egypt, and He says, I'm about to give you a land. And in the meantime, while He's speaking to Moses, they, they rebel and they disobey and they, they disbelieve and they go after gods. And what's the consequence? Serious consequences. You, this generation, will not enter the land. The next generation enters it, and God gives them the land. Unbelievable. And He says, here's the the expectations, here's the rules, and it doesn't take any time at all before they start disobeying, rebelling, repeating the sin of Adam and Eve, and what happens? Consequences. Death. God removes them. And you see that. That's one of the major themes of the Scripture. God removes them from the land. And, and we're not meant to stand back and say, boy, that was stupid. I never would have done that. We're meant to sort of identify with them. Like, oh boy, I've been there too. I can identify with this. There's a famous story, well-known story about G.K. Chesterton, a Christian author, writer. And he, he, in the newspaper, they asked this question, what's wrong with the world? And invited people to write in their answers. You know, what, what would you write in if the newspaper invited you to write in a column? What's wrong with the world? 
G.K. Chesterton wrote in, kind of a witty guy. He said, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. Pretty short letter to the point, but it's necessary that we get this right. What is the fundamental problem in the world today? And let's be honest, there's a number of problems, right? I don't want to belittle that. There are a number of real problems that we really do have to address and deal with, and that's very real. But the fundamental problem is me and my sin, and the fundamental problem is you and your sin. And if you, if you get that, if you're tracking with me right now and you get that, you are well on your way to understanding and getting the rest of the Bible. If, on the other hand, you don't really get that, if you don't really get that the fundamental problem in this world is sin, namely your sin, your rebellion against God. You have repeated the sin of Adam and Eve and brought death on yourself and introduced death into the world. If you don't get that, you're not going to really get the rest of the book. You'll get parts of it. You can understand it. You can quote it. You can talk about it in Sunday school. But if you don't really get the problem is me and my sin against God, the rest of this book isn't going to make as much sense to you as it should. And it can And this brings us now to talk about the third element, which is Christ. Jesus Christ is God's solution to our fundamental problem, which is sin. The New Testament is explicit about this. Jesus Christ is the solution. The Old Testament is pointing forward and anticipating and telling us that this solution is coming. The the Old Testament is making these promises that God's going to solve the sin problem. The New Testament is making the claim Jesus is the promised one. He's the one who was promised and He's the the fulfillment of these promises and the one who solves the problem. We see these promises throughout. We see one in our passage today. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is sometimes referred to as the proto-euangelion. The first gospel. The first evangel. Why? Because it's the first promise that God makes after sin, after the fall. And so God is entering in and He's making a promise. He's making a commitment. He's saying, I'm going to do something about this brokenness and this fallenness and this sin. And He's actually speaking in context to the serpent. And He says, Eve is going to have a child. This is the promise. Eve is going to have a child. And not just a child, but a male child, a son. And He is going to bruise your head. Some translations say He's going to crush your head. He's going to crush you. That's the promise. Now, all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, as you read it, you're supposed to be anticipating it. Where's this child that was promised? Where's the son of Eve? Where's the one who's going to crush the serpent? And you see this turmoil between the the descendants of Eve and the descendants of the serpent, and there's a lot of fighting and a lot of tension. And you're just waiting. When's he coming? Where is he? And all along the way, there are threats to the promise. Read the book of Exodus. What happens? The Pharaoh wants to kill all the Hebrew boys, the young boys. What is that? That's a threat to the promise. If he's successful, the promise is nullified. You read the book of Esther. What is Esther about? It's about an attempt by the serpent to, to, to nullify God's promise. But God's promise is not nullified. It is fulfilled. So all along the way, you're seeing these promises and here's a spoiler alert. So for those of you who don't want to know the end of the story, you know, close your ears real quick. All right? The serpent gets defeated in the end. And he gets 
put away. He gets put out of the picture. Right? The serpent is removed just as is promised. And, and the rest of the Bible, especially the New Testament, is telling us Jesus is the son of Eve. Jesus is the son of Adam who crushes the serpent's head, who conquers death. And in one sense, all the promises that come after Genesis 3.15, in one sense, they're all just coming back to Genesis 3.15 and returning to it. It's a continuation of the original promise. But what will happen is every once in a while, it'll sort of get advanced a little bit. The promise will get advanced and we get a little more detail, a little more specifics about the promise. Let me mention two. And you're going to hear me come back to these very frequently. You're probably going to get tired of it. But that's good because that means we're getting it. right? So two promises that are key promises that if you get these two promises and if you read the Bible in light of these two promises, I believe lights will start coming on as you read the Bible. Okay? So the first promise was Genesis 3.15. Here's two more. The second one is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1-3. through 3. We're going to focus on this one next week. This is a promise that God makes to Abraham. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a nation, a great nation. And in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. What is that? It's a promise that's a return to Genesis 3.15, but it's also advancing a little bit more. We now learn a little bit more. Not only is the serpent going to get crushed, but somehow... All families of the earth are going to be blessed through this. And it's going to happen through Abraham. And he's going to be turned into a great nation. So this nation's going to play a key role in this story. And when you get to the New Testament, the message of the New Testament is what? Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the descendant of Abraham. And he's the savior of the world. All the nations get blessed. All the families of the earth get blessed by Jesus, the descendant of Abraham. It is in Him all the families of the earth get blessed. That's the first key promise. A, sec- a third key promise is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, where God comes to David and God says to David, David, you're going to have a son and he's going to sit on your throne forever as a Davidic king. And he's going to reign and rule forever as the king of kings. Now, in one sense, that's just a return to a promise about crushing a serpent. And in one sense, it's just a return to a promise about a nation who's going to bless all the nations. But now we get a little bit more detail, a little bit more insight. It's going to happen through King David. King David's going to have a son. And he's going to be a Davidic king. And he's going to rule as a king for an eternity. And so Jesus is the central character, the central figure of the Bible. Because the rest of the Bible is about how Jesus is the son of David who rules as the king and will forever. He's the central person of the book. There's a scene in the movie, A River Runs Through It, where the father, who happens to be a minister, is teaching his son how to write. And the son writes this paper and brings it to his father and is waiting patiently for his father's approval so he can go fish. And the father takes the paper and is marking it up, all these red marks, you know, and you can just see the son saying, oh no. And he hands it to him and he says, half as long. The son's like, what? (laughs) Half as long. He takes it, reworks it, writes it, comes back, hands it to him, you know, waiting there. I want to go fishing. And the father's writing, marking up all kinds of red ink, hands it back to him and says, half as long. Son's like, what? 
half as long, I've already done that. Takes it back, half as long, brings it back. The father looks at it and says, it's good. Now throw it away. And I think he goes fishing at that point. What's the point? The father's teaching the son to write succinctly. Get to the point. What's the point? That's a key in life. To be able to communicate. That's key in relationships. What's the point? What are you saying here? What's the point? It's key when you're a teacher. When you're the one teaching the lesson, right? What's the point? Every, every Sunday after church when we're able, our family's having lunch and we have a devotional time, and I will ask this question. I always lead with this question. What was the sermon about? Whether I was the one preaching or somebody. What was the sermon about? And oftentimes one kill said, well, I liked it when he said this. Well, I liked it when he told this story. And I'll say, I'm, that's great, and I'm interested, and we're going to come back to that, but that's not the question I'm asking. What was the point? What's the point of the sermon? It, it's important to be able to, to figure that out, right? And if you're the teacher and you don't know the point, your people sure don't know the point, right? If you're a little hazy and a little confused, I guarantee you they're clueless, right? And it, some people have referred to this as the 3 a.m. test. If you're teaching a lesson, Sunday school, and someone wakes you up the night before at 3 a.m. and says, hey, what's your lesson about tomorrow? If you can't give it to them like that in one sentence, you don't know. You don't know what it's about, and therefore, they're sure not going to know what it's about, right? Here's the question. Do you have the ability to communicate and get to the point? Here's the point. Okay, what's the point of the Bible? There's a number of points. There's a number of lessons, a number of principles, a number of commands, a number of very important stories. What's the point of the Bible? Can you boil it down to its essence? What's it about? What's the point of it? And uh, I'm making the argument that the main point is about this person, Jesus Christ. It's about who He is. It's about what He does. It's about our need to come to know Him and believe in Him and follow Him ultimately for God's glory. It's all about God's glory. And so I'm encouraging you as you read, I hope you read along. I hope you read the book of Genesis this week in anticipation of next week. Next week we're covering the whole book. I hope you kind of read with this eye toward how does this point, how's this ultimately pointing to Jesus? And I don't mean by that, try to find him behind every rock and tree because he's not there. He's not behind every rock and tree in the Old Testament. I mean, how is this ultimately If it is one book written by one divine author, and if the main theme and the main point is ultimately about Jesus, wouldn't it make sense that we could see how this passage or this book or this section of Scripture is is getting us there? So I encourage you to read with an eye toward how is this pointing to Jesus? But another application I want to make for us as a congregation is to make sure that we keep Jesus central in our church especially as we start a new semester. We start a new semester. There's excitement. There's a lot of things going on. Ministries kicking off. I couldn't even hardly read the whole list. There's so many, we can't even get them in the bulletin. There's a bunch of stuff, and that's great, and that's good. But the one thing we've got to make sure is that we're not just doing stuff for the sake of doing stuff. We're not just busy for the sake of being busy because it feels like important stuff. Right? It's important that we evaluate and ask the question, are people coming to Christ through this? Are we being built up in Christ through this? Like, are we genuinely being built up or are we just kind of doing this because somewhere, somewhere along the way, somebody started this ministry and I kind of felt compelled, like, I probably ought to keep it going. Right? It, let, let's be honest. Is, are people coming to Christ and being built up through this ministry? And if not, by all means, let's not do it. 
That's what we're here for. We're here to know Jesus and make Him known. And everything we do ought to be about knowing Him and making Him known. And if there's anything we're doing that's not doing that, by all means, let's not waste our time so that we can focus on the very thing that we're supposed to be doing, which is knowing Him and making Him known. And this brings us to the response. The fourth aspect here. The incredible message of the Bible is that God is the King. He created us to know us and love us. We're created in His image, therefore we have incredible value and worth and dignity. But we've all rebelled and we've all repeated the sin of Adam and Eve, and the consequence is death, eternal death eternal separation from God. And the incredible message is God didn't leave us there. He came to us in the person of Jesus. And because of His life, death, burial, and resurrection, we can be right with God and forgiven. But here's the thing. That is not automatically applied to all people. That, that The application of what Jesus did is not automatically applied to people. You're not born into it. How do you get it? You have to respond. The response is key. And the Bible talks about responding in, in, in a sense where it's expected and necessary and, and, and you have to do this. And the Bible talks about the response in, in the sense of like, you get to do this. It's, your, it's an opportunity. It's an incredible opportunity. So let me first of all talk about the expectation. There's an expectation that you'll respond to God's grace. God demands it. Think about that. God actually commands you to believe in Him. He commands you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a command to believe in Him. And I was, I was actually kind of... There were several themes that really, as I read big chunks of the Bible, there were themes that I just sort of kept seeing over and over that, you know, at some level I knew was there. But when you sort of read it all in, you know, in one sitting, so to speak, it hits you. you know, wow. And one of the themes is it, it doesn't talk about God saving us so that we get to fly away and go to heaven. It just doesn't talk like that. Like God saves us so that we get to fly and we go to heaven. Show me. It doesn't talk like that. It talks like God saves us so that we will be His people and we will live for Him and represent Him and make Him known as the great God that He is in His creation. That's the point. It's about Him and His glory. How does He get the glory? He gets the glory when He redeems the people and they live for Him. And I was just kind of struck by this. The emphasis, you see it everywhere. Every book of the Bible, so clear, so explicit. So that we live as people who make this our prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, by the way. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're supposed to be the people who sort of live that prayer. Jesus taught us to pray it. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's an expectation, a demand, a command to respond with faith and repentance and, and following. But, but also I want to highlight there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity to respond. This is what you were created for. Think about that. You were created for this. God designed you for this. You were created for Him. You were created for worship of Him. You were created for obedience to Him. It's what you were created for. It's, 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 you were created to delight in Him. When's the last time you delighted in Him? You were created to have Him delight in you. See, this is what brings joy. Everybody has a longing for joy, a deep desire for joy. You want to experience it? 
Consider, this is the reason for which you were created. You were created for Him. You were created to know Him. You were created to obey Him. You were created to worship Him. The last scene of the Bible is incredible. The last few chapters, I actually read it fairly recently. Uh, It's this picture of the new Jerusalem, the new city of God, the new kingdom of God coming down from heaven and coming to earth. And God is with His people. That's the whole point. God is with His people and His people are with Him. And it describes it as God wiping away our tears. It's a wonderful day. It's what we're longing for. It's, it, it, it's, it's living life the way life was meant to be lived. It's a return to the garden. It's Genesis 1 and 2, but it's redeemed. It's a redeemed garden, so I think it's even better than the first garden. It's life the way it was meant to be lived. It's life the way every single one of us deep down long for it to be lived. And And I was impressed with this theme that keeps coming up throughout the Scriptures of how God's people are those people who live in anticipation of that day. We live with an eye toward that day when the King returns. We live with an eye toward that day when the new heavens and the new earth come down and and their creation is restored and we live life the way it's meant to be lived. And until then, we are the people who live as if Jesus is the King because He is. We're the people who make Him known by our lives and by our words. We're the ones who let people know He's the one who crushes the serpent. He's the one who crushes evil. He's the one who conquers death. It's in Him where life is found. It's in Him that all the nations and all the families of the earth get blessed. How? How does Jesus bring blessing to all families and nations of the earth? At the end of Genesis 3, We read this passage about God removing Adam and Eve from the garden as a consequence of their sin. And did you notice this part about the flaming sword? There's a flaming sword that guards the garden so that no one can get back into it unless they go under the sword. But if you go under the sword, what does that mean? It means death. It means blood. It means sacrifice. You die. And so the the whole beginning of the story is about the garden that God's people have been removed from as a consequence of their sin, and there's a, a death that stands at the door, judgment, a sword that has to be experienced in order for God's people to be restored and returned back to the garden. And in one sense, the whole rest of the Bible is about how Jesus is the son of Eve, the son of Adam, the son of Abraham, the son of David, fully God, fully man, who comes to earth King of kings who goes under the sword to die, to bleed as the Lamb of God, the sacrifice. Why? So that we could return to the garden. And and even more so and even better, not just the garden and the way life is meant to be lived, but we can return to God. And we can be right with Him. And we can live as His people. And we can live as citizens of His kingdom the way life is meant to be lived. And so I encourage you today, if you've never responded, respond to this incredible story of what God's done for you, this incredible message. Respond by trusting in Jesus. Trusting in His life, death, burial, resurrection for your right standing with God. Trust in Him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And be right with God and be prepared for that day when He returns. The Bible's clear. He's coming soon. Very clear. He's coming soon. Like a thief in the night. He's coming soon. Make sure you're prepared. And make sure you respond 
in such a way that you're living like he's the king. Every area of your life, your whole being is submitted to Jesus the king. Is there any area of your life this morning that you need to come to him and and, and sort of turn over to him and repent of and say, you're the king and I'm not. And I know this is an area that you're you're not good with and you're the king, so you get to call the shots. And I humbly come recognizing, repenting, recognizing my sin. And I turn it over to you. Give me strength to go forward faithfully. Let's, let's respond to the King. Let's pray.